Off at sea can be a challenge. We did a few transits, even some local ones like down to Tasmania, and it's just literally like hanging on for dear life for four days straight, barely eating, you can't sleep, you can't walk, you can't stand up. It's like someone picking up the ship and shaking it violently for four days. It's just hard work. Half the crew's got chronic seasickness. First time I swam up on a, a real mine was in Yumea. Just had this ping of when you see it, it sort of comes out of the dark and looks a bit sinister. And I had that one or two seconds of, oh my God, what am I doing here? But then it's like, yeah, this is my training. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to approach it. This is how I'm going to lift it and shift it. That was really good. Welcome to Inside the Real Job with me, your host, Yenfu Chen. Get ready to explore the world of diverse careers while fascinating stories await. We'll delve into the pros and cons while witnessing ever-evolving industries. Join me as we connect with individuals from all walks of life, unveiling their secrets and navigating the dynamic world of work. Let's embark on this journey into the realm of real jobs. Darren, how did you get into the Navy and why? Yeah, okay. So I joined the Navy on the 23rd of September, 1996, so 27 years ago. And it's a fairly common story. Like I grew up in Junee, which is a small town in southwestern New South Wales. And I had a really good life, had a good upbringing, played footy in the local team. I was an apprentice electrician in Wagga. So things were good. It wasn't a bad place, but I always wanted something different. I guess you'd call it a little fire in the back of the voice. And... It was literally seeing an ad in the paper. So back when we used to read the paper, I read an ad in the paper, called up and uh, went and had an interview and in really quick order, I joined the Navy. And that was way back then. What was the interview like? Yeah, it was pretty good. It was with what I realised now is quite a junior person. And then you have to go, so this system may have changed and this was 27 years ago. I must admit I'm not current on how people join now. But I did that and then I went down to uh, Melbourne and you do a bunch of testing for a day, a bunch of cognitive testing, medical testing and whatnot. Oh, I thought it was fairly bland really. Meet a bunch of people, have a bit of a chat and then I got a call a few weeks later and joined up and I was flying down to Melbourne before I knew it. So you join all sailors, so I was a sailor at the time. All sailors join at HMAS Service, which is a large training base in uh, southern Victoria. Joined as an electronics technician, so it's called an ET. So I was a seaman ET when I joined. And that was because you had the electrical background? Yes, I was an electrician and not a direct crossover, but yeah, a lot of similarities and that was where I was at. And was there a choice to join the army? Yeah, there was. Like when I think back on it, it's fortuitous, but just completely ignorant, didn't know. I thought Navy travel, and that was the difference. That was why I picked Navy over the other organisations. That was the main one about being able to travel and see different things. Yeah, right. And did you get to do that? I certainly have got to do that. I don't actually have a, a number or a list or a map, but... Yeah, I'd say I've been around most of the world, most of the good spots, and mm. some of the not-so-good-spots. Yeah, I've been really lucky with the travel part. And walk us through the first few years of being in the Navy. What's that like? I assume it's very routine, regimented. So it is to a degree. It's not as regimented as a lot of people think. And to be quite honest, I found that stuff quite easy. Some people buck up against it and have a hard time. It was just daily routine for me. It was no great deal. So you join the Navy, you do what's called recruit school, which is you learn those basics, how to wear a uniform, how to march, how to walk around and all those things. It's a bit of fun. And then you train in your trade, which for me was electronics technician. So I was down there for about, at Cerberus for about 14 months, a long time. And we just had an awesome group of guys. It has changed now, but that then it was predominantly guys. I was 21, so we're all between 19, 20, 21. First time out of home, living at Cerberus, you know, getting paid pretty well, not that taxing of a life. And it was just, when I think back on it, 
probably still the best posting I've ever had in the Navy. Still the best friends I've ever made. Every weekend we'd do stuff, we hired a houseboat. We used to go to the footy all the time in Melbourne. Heaps and heaps of stuff. It was really good times. So coming out of that, and then you bomb burst all over the country. I ended up coming to Sydney, so it was my first time living in Sydney, as I was a, a seaman at the time, which was the rank. I moved to HMA's Penguin, which is actually the base I work at now. So 27 years later... Full I circle. Still, yeah, I can still see the window of the little cabin I used to live in there. And I worked at a base in North Sydney called HMA's Waterhen. There's quite a few bases in Sydney and around the country. I've been lucky enough to beat all of them. And then I was working in Sydney, I ended up getting on a few ships, which was a really great experience. Like, oh, I loved it. I didn't have a family. It was just pretty easy living. Lots of good people around. And then after about five years, well, actually, I always knew from the start, but I, um, I went back to night school. I wanted to commission as an officer. I always had that drive and ambition. So while I was working in Sydney, I went to uh, redid high school at North Sydney TAFE. Did a fair bit better the second time around the first time. <laughs> nice one. When you apply yourself. Yeah. Yeah, I was the guy sitting up the front of the class thinking one of those young blokes stood up the back being wallies. Uh, almost felt like calling all my old high school teachers and saying, I'm sorry, I'll get it. I know how important this is now. And then in 2001, oh, it's called commission. So you receive a commission. It's from the Queen. So you commission as an officer. So I did that and changed over and became an officer which is, yeah, something I always wanted to do. So then you go through a whole bunch of similar training, but you're learning to do it as an officer and not a sailor. Now I learned how to drive ships, which went for a long time, and, yeah, that was really, really enjoyable. Do you have to be a seaman for a period before you can become an officer? Uh, you don't. The way I did it is not normal. Normally you join the Defence Force as an officer right. and just start off that path, either to go to ADFA, which is the college in Canberra. A lot of officers join through that way or you can what's called join direct entry and go into a lot of specialist fields if you had the opportunity i would encourage people to do it that way instead of you could say i wasted five years i mean it's not how i look at it yeah if it was on the cards i'd encourage people to go directly as an officer it wasn't on the cards for me so i had to change that one up but that first five years i'm sure you learned a lot to get yourself ready to be an officer at the same time right yeah i did and i found again when i was a junior officer it can be really challenging one of the most challenging things as a junior officer in the Defence Force is you have so many senior sailors or what's called non-commissioned officers have been in a very long time, are very experienced, and you have to lead them. And that can be a real challenge for young officers. Indeed, I'd say it's one of the most challenging things. Now, I guess I had a bit of a heads up there because I was a bit older. I'd been a sailor for a while, so that came more naturally to me. And then how long were you an officer for? So I have been ever since. So I'm now my rank is a commander. So, yeah, I've been doing that for a while now, and I've done, I was just talking before we started up, but the general gist in Navy is every two years you change your job. That's called a posting. We have a posting cycle, so you train in a certain area, you learn a bunch of things about that, you go and progress your training, uh, and then you move on to the next role. And it's always been one of the most appealing things to me. So every two years I change jobs, and some of them, some of them are similar, but some of them are just completely divergent and you're essentially doing a new role you still use your skills you know how defense works so for this my last three jobs i was the commanding officer of hmas diamantina which is hands down the best job i've ever had like it was the culmination of everything in my career like absolute reward and then i worked in a planning area where we planned all the large exercises 
around Australia and around the world, and now I work in uh, instruction and supervision of diving. So they're just my three ones, let alone the last previous 10 jobs I've had there. Yeah, right. And why do you think they do that every two years? Progression. One of the things in defence is everybody senior starts at the bottom and grows up. I think that's going to be challenged moving forward because it's not a great way to build a large workforce. Yeah, but the idea is is you're kind of on that ladder and you're continually moving forward. Now, overall, I find that a real positive. There are, of course, negatives. You Just as you get really good at a job, there's an old joke. Normally, you get really good at it after two years and you move on and start again. But we need throughput. You need people coming through behind you. I quite like the term that we're all stewards of our position. So I don't own being boss of the dive school. I'm there for two years. I try and do as well as I can. I try and do the best job I can. And then you hand it over to the next person, hopefully in a better place. And that's stewardship. And we just move forward like that. Yeah. yeah. And from a business sense, makes sense because it motivates people to different roles and they're getting different skills. So mm. they want to stay in the Navy because yeah. they know I'm going to get, get another position or get another skill set in two years' time. That's the concept. It is meant to be motivational. Now, I get there's also a flip side. If you think of a factory, sometimes there's a guy working on the floor for 10 years. It doesn't mean he's done anything wrong. It's just what he likes. So I guess that's not how we work in defence. Yeah. Um, are you able to do that? If you find a role that you go, hey, I'm really good at this and I want to stay, are you allowed to? To a degree we can, but overall not really. It's about progression because there's a lot of people behind you. There's a lot of people in front of you. Now, it doesn't mean everybody, promotion's based on merit, so it doesn't mean you get promoted, but normally cycle around between different jobs. Yeah. yeah so no, you don't normally stay in the same way. Yeah. And the other reason behind that is that also... I call it cross-skilled. Mm. Like if you're out at sea and something happens, there's more people that are able to do multiple requirements. Yeah, it really is. So I find it broadens everyone's horizons very much so. Now, where you're talking there about being at sea, so on a ship, everybody has their job and their trade. And certainly something I pushed when I was lucky enough to be sea of a ship is some people can get quite insular in their trade or have their little section, but we're all part of that ship. Yeah, so there's a saying... Not my part of ship, saying I work in this section, not on that section. But uh, my rule on my ship, you weren't allowed to say that. It was everybody's part of their ship. Well, everyone has to be collaborative to make sure this ship is running perfect. It does. So when it, when it works, it's a thing of beauty. Obviously, when it doesn't, it's hard work. <laughs> and that's why I think so fondly of the time when I was CA, like, we had some real wins. And when it, when it was winning, it just felt like everybody from every department, every background every specialisation really singing together. And when you do those whole ship evolutions that require everyone to work well together, it's a real buzz. Nice. Can you maybe tell us what is life like out at sea? How long were you out there each time and what's it like living on a ship? Yeah, so living on a ship can be a lot of fun. It can also be that is service. It is sort of like holding the line that day in day out and sometimes being at sea in particular can get quite monotonous so we have a lot of routines on ships essentially the alarm goes at each day and we have very routines about when our meals are and that's good because you need people to understand what the routine is it's how we keep things moving you know 24 hours a day and when i was learning being at sea for quite a long time so about 40 or 50 days straight and then i just simple things like the the morning pipe i just couldn't stand it i was like right we need a break from this like i don't want this 40 days straight so they're just little things but life at sea look it can be really challenging so our warships come in different sizes actually the australian ones are a fair bit smaller than some other bigger countries but they come in different sizes and so on the larger ones you can have 
like 40 sailors in a mess. A mess is where you sleep. So imagine triple bunks lined up, 10 deep, 30 or 40 people in a mess living together in that hopefully harmonious communal environment. But there's a real skill set to being able to do that well. And if people don't do it well, it really bucks the whole trend. So not only do you need to know how to do your job, but you need to be able to live in that environment. And most people can do it really well. It's pretty close living. Now, lucky enough, when you go up the ranks a bit, that changes and you end up having your own cabin, which does make a big difference. But still, yeah, life at sea can be a challenge. I always liked, uh, the first ship I sailed in was to Brook out of Sydney and we sailed up to Cairns. And I remember some of the old guys telling me that it's a really romantic, beautiful thing to arrive somewhere by sea. We, we've all flown places and 24 hours time, you can be on the other side of the world, literally. But when you go by sea, you see the environment change. You've been in the environment, particularly in the ship I was in a mine hunter, which is a fair bit smaller. You were just at the mercy of them, they were real things. And then to arrive in particularly a foreign port, you really notice how the ocean changes, the sky changes, the landscape. I didn't understand it before, but I really understand the early adventure of sailing on the seas, just what an adventure and what a challenge that would have been. Yeah. And talking about that small space, living with multiple people in the one place, is that just something you get used to over time like how long did it take you to adapt to that sort of lifestyle you do get used to it as so i handled that stuff all right not because i'm amazing it just wasn't a thing that really bothered me for some people it really is my wife teases me now and likes to say i'm institutionalized so i can be told to go into that room and i find it quite easy i think it is something you learn over time but also there's rules both formal and informal about how to do it and a lot of it's just about respect some really minor examples are you know, how much noise you make, how you keep your locker, where you keep your shoes, what you like getting up in, because we, you know, the ship runs 24-7. All those things about communicating and having respect for your fellow people, that's what makes it well. And was the 40 to 50 day one the longest that you've been out at sea in one go? It has been for me, so I can't recall the exact number, but for me probably 50 days was probably the longest, and that was a quite a while ago when we were doing resolute operations around northern Australia, so around Christmas Island. But the ships, actually a couple of years ago, during COVID, the ships did a really long deployment like 110 days without going ashore, which is the longest I've ever heard of. Wow. Yeah, it'd be really hard. Was that because they didn't want people getting sick? Yeah, because you weren't let into port and it was quarantined. Uh, So on my ship, on Domtina, not my ship anymore, I say that with a broken heart. So probably the longest stint was about 15 days and a typical one about 8 to 10 days, you know, working or transiting into a port for two or three and then go and do that again is more of a general... What's the usual break time between you have to go out to sea again? It really comes in dribs and drabs. The ships need a lot of maintenance done on them, so normally maintenance in home port, which you still have to work quite hard, particularly the technical people. And then it can really vary, but uh, an example may be then you go on a deployment. For example, I was lucky enough to take my ship to Korea and Japan. There's some really large uh, mine countermeasure exercises over there. So we had a route up the east coast of Australia, through the Philippines, South China Sea, and in each one of those areas you have a few missions, and we're away for about three and a half months doing that. And then you come back, take a break, do a maintenance period, and then maybe do that again. And so I was on the ship for two years, did, yeah, did a bit, so two large deployments like that, some smaller ones, probably away, we'll say six months of the year. And when I think about that now, I've got two young kids and a wife, I can tell you it gets harder and harder and actually where I am now I would struggle to do that again yeah so do you recommend try and doesn't sound like you have a choice anyway but if you can get all the sailing 
Uh, yeah, if, sea if you time can. out early while you're younger, you should try and do that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, the military is a young person's game overall, and particularly doing those operational roles at sea. But you just can't control that. So for me, it's worked out really well. That's one of the key things about service, and probably why most people, when they are a bit older, get relieved the service. Just going away is challenging. It's really, really hard. I don't think there's any other way of looking at that. Some people love it. You'd uh, have to have a bit of an understanding partner or family. Yeah, it really is. And it's a we talk uh, regularly. Like last Friday, I promoted a young guy and asked him to bring his family in because it's always about family. So we, I mean, we get told to, but I also do it. And we thank family at every opportunity because every piece of service, everyone in a uniform, is supported by a family because if they are not, it doesn't work out too well. Yeah, okay. Going back to the being out sea time and yep. then coming back in, you, you talked about maintenance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I assume you're still working every day yeah. and you're just doing stuff on land. So, yep, the ships, uh, so when they're tied up, they're alongside and we do maintenance on them. So it does depend on which department you work in. For example, the marine technicians be pulling apart the engines and doing maintenance on them. People that work on the ship may be doing ship's husbandry. The officers may be planning the next trip. And it's also a good opportunity. So people take leave, which is holidays, do other courses. It's just like a workplace, really. It's like a small office. You go in and do your work, nine to five. We really try to, in Navy, unless you are away, unless you are doing something, it replicates normal life as much as possible. Is that to give a bit of normality? Yeah, so absolutely. So when you out see, yeah. Yeah, it's um, it's to have some normality. I mean, plus it's you know it's how I like to live. I run the school, and that's my life as well. <laughs> it's also to get a bit of credit in the bank with all the sailors. Yeah. So what other challenges do you face while you're out at sea? You were talking about the small space. It's very regimented. Other challenges, as I said, the weather really, particularly if you're an Australian mine hunter, and um, the weather really plays a big factor. It is just uncomfortable in big seas. Like, it is physically draining to be on a ship. We did a few transits, even some local ones, like down to Tasmania, and it's just literally like hanging on for dear life for four days straight, barely eating, you can't sleep, you can't walk, you can't stand up. It's like someone picking up the ship and shaking it violently for four days. It's just hard work. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's unple- You know, half the crew's got chronic seasickness. you as when I was the CA going through that, like just really concerned about people's welfare, trying to get the ship where it had to be and keep it in one piece as it was getting smashed around. The weather really plays a big part. plays a big part in warfare as well. Probably hold off and get too deep into the warfare-specific stuff, but weather is still, just like it was for man of old day sail, plays a huge factor. Probably the other part is, so connectivity, we have some but not much. Don't have to bang on about people, you know, younger guys and girls of today's age are on their phones left, right and centre. And that's not available. You may not be able to communicate much at all. It can be really challenging and the communication you have can be quite limited. And having the freedom to be able to do what you want in terms of where the ship's going And probably some of the hardest things is when the ship's program changes. We have a large organisation in Canberra called Maritimes Operations in Joint Operations Command. And it's big government business and sometimes the ship has to change where it's going. And that's a tough conversation with the crew when they've got their heart set on something and say, sorry guys, we are turning right and going somewhere else. 
that's really hard work. Yeah, but I guess that's part of the job, some would say. It is part of the job. Yeah, but I think you can just say it like that. That doesn't go down no, too well. No, true. Yeah. yeah, when I uh, took my ship to Sri Lanka and we, Malaysia, and we were meant to stop in Singapore for a port visit, and everyone was really hanging out. Like, it's a great spot to pull in Singapore. And we got diverted to another country, which was strategically really important we had to go there and visit and as we'll say as you sail past Singapore you can see all the lights and everything and it was oh, I felt like the crew was up there crying looking at the lights reaching out at them it was a, it was a hard message that one but yes the particularly Australian warship is a strategic asset and we need to go where the government needs us to yeah and you mentioned seasickness yes is that something you do overcome in time you do but everybody gets seasick in my opinion, and I've been in the Navy a long time, if you ever meet someone that says they don't get seasick, I think they are fibbing or haven't been in real seas. Yeah, right, okay. Everybody gets seasick. Yes, you do get better at it. I mean, just your body and your mind get used to it. You have little tricks. Uh, I still take, even when I was in command, I still take a seasickness tablet when required. But it's more so just learning what it is. Like You see some young sailors their first day out, and they're just like, oh, my God, like literally laying on the ground in a... <laughs> Pull, and you can see you can in see their eyes. Position. Yeah, you can see in their eyes, and they think, "What is going on here?" And yes, you do get better at it. I think a lot of that's just the realization of what's happening. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And what about fitness-wise? Do you is there a certain fitness level that you have to keep a standard to while so, you're out at sea, or just in general? So there is there is a fitness standard in defence, and, and there's one specific to Navy. So we do an annual fitness test. It's not what I would call very arduous, but I also work in clearance diving branch, the mine warfare and clearance diving branch, and that is renowned to be the highest level of fitness probably in the defence force or, or one of. In terms of actual markers, we have to get to. It's not well defined, and it's probably more the divers challenging each other to maintain the status quo. But the the training to be a clearance diver is tremendously physical. And I can say back in my day story, it was far more so back in the day. Oh, do you feel like it's changed? Is it, it has. Have they released the well, pedal a little bit? Well, when you say they, you mean me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm the they now. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so I'll give you the staff answer. It has changed and purposely so. Uh, it was just so challenging and so hard. And the really unfortunate part was you'd get people after 15 or 20 years and their body was breaking down and we would train people so hard that we just couldn't keep them going so from a corporate point of view that's really bad it mm-hmm. cost a few million dollars to train a clearance diver they can't stay past 10 years but more than that just from a, a professional from an empathetic point of view it's just a bad way to treat people don't worry it's still challenging it's still hard but we can do it far far better and we are doing that now it's been a monumental change in defense so i work a lot with the special operations command we have a what's called a human performance optimization cell so how to get the best out of person both mentally and physically so that they can be you know, the best they can be throughout their whole career now they may still have challenges but those challenges can't be injected into them because of poor training or something we've done. And I feel pretty happy about that part. In terms of it just being a grind and a flog session, no, it's not quite as hard as it used to be, um, but it is still very physically and challenging demanding to be a clearance diver. Yeah, okay. And talking about the performance specialist, is that just come in recently? Look, it's been bubbling for quite a while. It's recent in the dive school where I work. Probably the special forces community has let it out. They often do. They're, they are at the forefront of a lot of these things. They have just a lot of support, a lot of horsepower, a lot of money. And if they're going in this direction, then so should we be. But it's quite similar to a large professional sporting organisation. So we do a lot of the testing that they do now. We use a lot of their metrics 
just about being able to get people up so they keep going throughout their career. But while we can learn some stuff about how to train from the sporting organisations, we are very different because the sporting organisations have a really defined... They have, may have an 80-minute game every Sunday, and that's their goal. Our goal is enduring. Mm. You know, it's almost like we're always ready to play, and that's the difference. And touching on the clearance diver component, yep. can you tell us how you got into that? Is that one of those two-year rotations? They say, uh, hey, Darren, you're up. Do you want to go here? Or did you specifically <coughs> say, hey, that sounds interesting. That's something I wanted to Yeah, wanted no, to that's definitely a volunteer status, okay. that one. So you have to volunteer to get into it. In terms of the two-year thing, I guess that's when you're qualified that works. But we also train a lot. Like, I don't know the exact number, but about 30% of the Navy is trainees. So we need to get them trained because people under training kind of aren't really contributing to the greater fight. So I trained to drive ships as as, called, as a warfare officer. So you learn to you know take a warship out, do a bunch of driving it, and learning the warfare part, and then you specialise. I know this part's going to sound a bit tricky without knowing it. So imagine if you've got a quite a large pool of officers that have learned how to drive ships, and then you go into the next phase. So you either go deep specialisation in the warfare of the ship, which is called a principal warfare officer. You may get into deep specialisation in navigation. You can do mine warfare and clearance diving, which is what I've done. And there's a couple of other streams branch out. So then I got into that, and that's kind of like your final phase of training. So I trained as a what's called a mine warfare and clearance diving officer. That was about 18 months, I think, of training. There's a flog session. So mine warfare is one of the warfare streams in Navy, and that's sort of what I've followed throughout my career. So uh, mines in a naval context, again, it's a kind of a concept not well understood, in spewing world, nor should it be, I guess. But all modern navies, even all non-modern navies, have a huge mine infrastructure. Use offensive and defensive mining, and Australia will be into that shortly as well. That's an unclassed thing. So we train on how to either defeat that warfare or to use it to our advantage. So we do the mine warfare part, and then as officers, we then train in the clearance diving. So clearance diving... The term clearance comes from clearing mines. That's historically where it came from in 1951, based on the engineers in World War II, so clearing old mines that were dropped mainly around the UK. So that's got into underwater search. So if you think, you know, there's a lot of movies about uh, EOD or IED, which is done on land. Think about that, but then put it subsurface. And that's what a Navy diver does or a clearance diver. So we do those things underwater. And then we have sort of branched into a couple of other tactical areas as well. So probably a couple of key things about the training is... It's called conventional munitions disposal, which is what people know as EOD. So ordnance, finding it, so bombs, missiles, rockets, prodigies, projectiles, finding those things and making them safe or moving them somewhere and disposing of them. So that's a really large component of the training and then learning how to use the specialist dive sets. So we dive what's called uh, rebreathers. So you, most people know what a scuba set is. If you haven't dived scuba, you see them around on TV or whatnot. So we do that and then take it to the next level into what's called a rebreather. Really specialist design dive sets. When you're underwater, you're on a complex modern mine. So if you're on a scuba set, say, the magnetic signature of the scuba set would function the mine, the noise of the bubbles would function the mine, plus if you're in a clandestine environment, the bubbles going to the surface would either give away your location. So we dive sets that have no magnetic signature, they're made out of special material. They're called a rebreather, so you have an inhalation and exhalation hose, so you kind of rebreathe the same air. And on the oxygen rebreather, so for example, you may breathe in 100% oxygen, consume that into your body, breathe out CO2, Obviously, you can't breathe that in again. So it goes through the set. It scrubs out uh, carbon dioxide. You just breathe in the oxygen again. So you get about six breaths out of one, one breath. And then you just keep using that set around. And then we have electronic mixed gas set called the Stealth. That's for diving a lot deeper. So 
diving heliox, diving nitrox, different gases for different depths, and that's how we work at sea using those type of sets. Sounds very technical. Parts of it are actually, and it's something we try and do in the training now, is really try and, instead of just throwing on a dive set and going, hey, go get after that task, of really trying to understand the science behind it. We're quite lucky where we work, we've essentially got our own private hospital and special medical doctors. So underwater medicine is a real specialisation. Got a large recompression chamber where I work now. Understanding the effects on the body has been a bit of a dark art for a while. Unfortunately, not everybody can breathe oxygen submerged. You know, a couple of my real good friends didn't work out for them, unfortunately. And when you got to that point where you volunteer, yes. why did you go down that path and not the others? Yeah, good question. Probably just the challenge. I yeah. mean, it was always seen as the hardest thing to do. Now I'm a bit older, I think it shouldn't always be the hardest thing to do. But certainly, even now, like it's always seen as the most challenging, most bespoke really small teams leading small professional teams that are doing something completely different to the rest of the Navy or the rest of the Defence Force challenging yourself to get through that course and be successful and then go and work at clearance diving teams again doing tasks that I mean they're just the specialists of underwater everything in Navy and that was the appeal and that's what attracted me to it yeah right and, and even when I talk about those things they still do attract me to it and you said that a few of your mates didn't see it through the end yeah so I assume you have to get qualified at certain stages and yeah. pass and how many of those stages are there oh there's there's a whole bunch I guess you'd say uh, stages I'll say probably five or six key ones so and then you come out of that and then you called what's called earning your specialization or you earn your badge big gold badge that says I'm a more warfare and clearance diving officer we have got better at it but it had really high failure rates for a long yeah. time too too high really and i assume each stage gets hard or is it just different yeah just just different and on top of learning what you have to learn and being successful because you're constantly being physically challenged just unfortunately you get injuries and plus you've got the old subsurface things so eyes and your ears and your nose barotrauma so there's just a whole bunch of things that can bring you undone which sometimes out of your control yeah, for example, we've got a trainee right now who's really, really strong and playing squash on the weekend, tore his Achilles. He's come back, that was about a year ago, he's come back now, but it's just like there's nothing you can do. You can't train to be a diver with a ruptured Achilles. Yeah, but you can try again. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. He's going, he'll be successful plus one year. Yeah. And touching on that, so he's got injured, so what do you do during that whole time that he's recovered? Uh, actually, using him, he went to what's called kind of our headquarters where they do policy and administration. But we do have, I actually think it's a real positive. So in, in Navy, we have our own doctors and we have our own medical medical system and you almost have an unlimited amount of sick leave as long as you get recuperating back towards your task so particularly where, where I work now at the school unfortunately we've always got a number of people in long-term injuries things like you've busted your knee think about someone in a footy team that's done an ACL or done a whatever they're out for the season we've got a bunch of people right now working for me that are essentially out for the season so we've got to get them better where we can. If it's not going to work out, we try and transition away nice and quickly. It's really, really hard on people when, for some people, their whole life is to become a clearance diver. And they get injured and it adds a year and then they come back and something else happens and gets really hard. And even particularly for the ones where it's less of an obvious physical injury, but the guys where it's an internal injury where the doctors say, look, diving mixed gas isn't for you. Like I can tell you that have a super motivated who, what looks like a prime athlete in front of you in your office that's their whole life's about being a clearance diver and say, look, I'm afraid this is never going to happen for you. You've been downgraded medically and you'll never dive in the military. Like, that's a hard conversation. Yeah, for sure. And then we just normally let them decompress for a little while and then we talk about what's next. 
hopefully they want to stay in Navy and retrain in something else. Often they don't. Though. It's just such a crush to where they want to be. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah okay. it's just a bugger. As like you said earlier, it's like probably being a professional sportsman, right? Yeah. You've trained all your life to become something and then injury or something that was out of your control has yeah. killed it. Yeah. yeah. That's tough. What about some really good success stories that yes. you've had? Yeah, share some. As a diver. So we do op- operations called Render Safe. So around the Southwest Pacific, there is a tremendous amount of old ordnance. So World War II primarily. Uh, sold mines, uh, bombs, a uh, whole bunch of stuff. And we go to the, around the Southwest Pacific and we do what's called a Render Safe Exercise Operation. We will go and find a whole bunch of stuff in harbours, in ports, and we'll either take it somewhere and dispose of it all, so function it. And it's really good because it's that combination of doing your job for real. I mean, the stuff's old, but it's still, all, all the bang still goes bang. Really? Yeah. yeah. It, it doesn't function as it's kind of, particularly the Seymour ones. They may have changed the way that they function, but still cranks off like it's brand right. new. So it's that combination of you doing your real job, all the training you've put together, so you get to do that, but you also really helping local country like this stuff is everywhere like there's villages where you just walk through and there'll be a bomb sitting there it's been there for 60 years so just re- really good that we're helping our country and from one of the strategic pillars from the defense forces in the southwest pacific is our area of operations so we need to help our friends so it just hits all those marks and so i find those ones really really enjoyable first time i swam up on a, a real mine was in Yumea. I just had this ping of when you see it it sort of comes out of the dark and looks a bit sinister I had that one or two seconds of, oh my God, what am I doing here? But then it's like, yeah, this is my training. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to approach it. This is how I'm going to lift it and shift it. That was really good. So I think most people in the Australian Defence Force or Navy really enjoy doing render safes. Some other really uh, key things, like I told you, I'll see after I'm a teener, which is the highlight of my career because it's kind of like the combination of years and years of training. And I just always love the leadership part of it. So driving ships, mine warfare, I do really enjoy. But you know what led me into being an officer and what's really kept me going in the Defence Force is I love leadership. I know we're meant to do it, but I actually really, really enjoy it. So a third one is I've just done so many odd things in Navy. And when I think back at all of them, particularly now I like telling the kids, there's just so many opportunities to do things that are just out there. Even, so last week I went away for four days on the Navy surfing camp to Port Stephens, which was great. Uh, so there's opportunities like that abound. And particularly when I was younger, I used to do so many of them. I did the Sydney to Hobart on a Navy yacht, which was a real highlight. Did a whole bunch of adventure training. I was part of the Army Airpine Association. But there's all these things you can just be a part of and get after and particularly the combat survival courses some of the specialist roping courses i got into like just really something completely different and that's the stuff that i always love doing it sounds really broad there's yeah. so much you can do so particularly when i was a sailor my friends used to tease me about it all the time i'll always be in these stiff and i ended up on the back page of the navy news like about 20 times because i'd always be doing something different which was a pleasant joke to yeah wow that's cool. There's some things that aren't so good. So a lot of my friends or peers uh, went to Afghanistan and I did not. Sure. Uh, which in retrospect, I'm pretty happy about. Time I was filthy. Years ago, I was doing a lot of Resolute, which is protection of our northern borders. A lot of times when that was the number one thing in Australia, mm-hmm. and you don't have to look hard into Australian politics to work that. I had some challenging, rewarding and harrowing experiences with illegal boat people. Like, it's a really hard sell. Like, I remember thinking, particularly a lot of people coming from Sri Lanka, Coming from horror, they've gone through horrors to get there and almost within sight of the land, mm. we pull them up and take them away. And I was involved in the first turn back where we took them back to Indonesia and trying to reconcile. Like you could write a story about just how horrible it is. 
And how do you overcome that? Well, you make your peace with what you can make your peace with. Yeah. Um, so particularly the last couple of long wars that Australia's been involved in, so some people really struggle with that. Uh, always, because I have to talk to my staff, or my crew, or a whole bunch of people about this. I actually had quite a long, what I call a cultural interview with the trainee officers we had at the dive school recently. And we're going through the Brereton report, which is reporting to alleged war crimes in Afghanistan, and talking about leadership to say that Junior officer leadership is very challenging. Junior officer leadership at a clearance diving team is probably tenfold more so because you're in a really high-end specialist team with particularly some, they're called petty officers or chiefs, so imagine sailors that have been in about 15-ish years, deep specialists in their field, seen and done it all, and you have to come in as a newly qualified uh, officer and lead and control them. And it's tough. Yeah, it would be. So we're always talking about these things and really rewarding and really challenging, but also quite tough. So in terms of Australian Defence Force is a volunteer organisation, so you can leave at any time. However, if you decide that you don't want to do a job in the Navy, then you should leave. You can't conscientious objection, you can't do that, all right, because you can't wear a uniform if you do that. But you can leave at any time. Mm. And sounds like there's a lot more support these days. Yeah, there is. I mean, I personally think there's a tremendous amount of support and talk a lot about it almost daily at work. And people need to reach out and there's a huge amount of support available. And has time changed in that way? Do you feel like in your experience, more people are staying in the Defence Force because of this support? I think so. So I joined in 96 and I had to sign up because I was a technical trade sales. So I had to sign up for six years. And I remember it being the biggest thing on the planet. I almost didn't join because I was like, oh my God, six years, I can't do that. So my understanding is a lot of those time frames are a lot less now because you just can't take young people off the street and say, sign up for this. It doesn't work. And so the Australian Defence Force, we're an employer in the Australian people and we need to be an employer of choice. So we're competing against old mate at the mines. We're competing against someone working down at the surf shop because we want all those same people and we want them to join the Australian Defence Force. And we want them to commit to service. So very few people stay in the Navy for 20 years now. They move in and out and that's... Oh, was that I, common, moving in and yeah, out? Yeah, it is now. So even when I joined, that wasn't you're either in or you're out when you left and you normally never came back. But now we have what's called a service category. I'm not an expert in this because I've always been in the Navy, but I'm a service category seven, which means I go to work every day. So there's six service categories between that and down to the level of you may work a few days a week, you may get out for a few years and come back in. And there's some really positive stories now of people getting out, more so the officers, I guess, get out and work in a professional area and they may join at a higher rank. They may say, well, I've actually been the HR person at this massive corporation for four years. I left as a captain, now I want to come in as a Commodore and use my skills. That is happening probably at a bit of a slow burn. I think in a few years' time, it'll just be common day. People transition in and out quite regularly. And I guess it can probably support life stages too. That's right. So I have two people who work for me have just gone on maternity leave, which is common, you know, pretty standard in all workplaces. Actually, another guy who's a technical sailor said he always wanted to learn how to fly, so he's gonna leave for eight months and learn how to fly. And so you just set it up so they can come back. And that, that's really important. People need to transition well, because if they don't, they don't come back. And plus, you want them to enjoy their experience. And I find most people do love their experience, and they'll be sitting around a year or two later in the pub saying, yeah, I loved the Navy. I've made friends with a lot of professionals, I guess, in a lot of the officer training I've done, so lawyers and doctors and whatnot. So those guys and girls have a bit of a different route. They join as a specialist. So just say you're a surgeon. You may join as a commander or a captain and say, I'm the surgeon that can do whatever. 
And if something bad happens, they may do a deployment to the Southwest Pacific, do a whole bunch of good work, and then come back and leave defence. And they normally love it because they're contributing to the community. Mm. You know, they are part of the Defence Force. And, and I find it's great, sort of good for us, good for them, because we need those specialist skills. You can't, I mean, you couldn't train a lawyer in Navy from the start. And the flip side is then we have a gap year. So my nephew last year joined the gap year program. It's only a few years old. And so you essentially join up. You've got no real job or responsibility. You pretty much just send 12 months cruising around the Navy, meeting as many people as you can to find out if you like it or not. Really? Like it's such a good opportunity. That's awesome. Yeah, I know. It's like being on a graduate program. Yeah. At the end, you decide, do I like it? Am I going to sign up or not? Or if not, you just say thanks and you leave. What a great idea. I couldn't fathom why someone wouldn't want to do that. So my nephew, he has since signed on. He's in logistics. He loves it. He's this young guy doing yeah. his thing, playing lots of sport. And is that just in general in the Defence Force? You, so you see a bit of everything? I'm not actually an expert on it. So I don't have people come to me now that are in it. I think it's within Navy and the other forces have it. Okay. Do you know they only take a select number a year? So, yeah, you have to apply for it. It's similar to an internship. To apply, you have to put your case forward. I'm sure there's targets of all different areas to recruit from. And then if you get a gig, yeah, you sign up. You do recruit school, which is about 10 weeks. And then you spend the year, essentially, you're just cruising around. Getting exposure. That's a good way for someone coming out of uni or school even, just it to really, go, yeah. yeah, What's if they're really unsure what they want to do, this this is ideal. Yeah, yeah I, I would actually don't know what anyone would try and join without doing the gap year, really. Yeah. You just get a bit of exposure. Yeah. And you mentioned a few times the word service. Yeah. Is that something that you feel like you need to be really a part of your DNA to really want to go into some sort of defence force? Um, or is that drilled into you as well? So I don't think you need it ingrained Particularly, you know, to ask a 20-year-old tell me about service, I think that's probably a bit too much. But you do see a commonality in people who just want to do those type of jobs. If people don't come to the Defence Force, they may often go to, like, emergency services or something like that, which I'd say is, like, service without them knowing it. So maybe in 10 years' time, they'll realise that's what service has been. I've wanted yeah. to commit. Right. And talking about 10 years' time, what do you think is going to change that might attract someone that want to join the Navy or Defence Force in general? Mate, I'll just be serious for a second and mm. hopefully not a war. Yeah, okay. Okay, because there may be one between now and then and I, I don't think now if that would attract people or not, but that yeah. may be a deciding factor. All right, let's assume there's not going to be because we will hope that. Yes. All right, so some other things. I think like about how you can move in and out of defence now. That stuff will grow and grow and grow. And the idea of joining at the bottom and and work your way through, I think will be disbanded in some way. I know there's a lot of smart folk looking at that now. And... It's almost like it's a renter's market. It'll be because we need people to be in and to serve and to be able to do these jobs. Some other parts that we'll see which will be really exciting is, um, I mean, the AUKUS, the nuclear submarine deal, is just tremendously huge in terms of the whole of society. So actually the, one of the guys heavily involved in it, uh, Admiral Mead, gave this speech. I heard him say about how right now there's a 15-year-old girl in high school studying science and she'll be the first CEO of Australian nuclear submarine. There'll be people on those pathways, either training in nuclear science, training how that affects the whole of society, like not just in the Defence Force but in the Australian workplace. I think that will happen and that will really appeal to some people. And the next piece is, I mean, we've already made the transition, but there is just so much autonomy and AI and defence now. Actually, the, uh, the fourth arm of the Defence Force is space. And when you go to some of those space briefs, it is intense about what is happening there. Now, you need to get right into the classified briefings to get into the good oil. But just at a 
a really benign level. The idea of the space has a vision of everything and how that is used in a warfare setting, I don't think anyone knows right now, but it will change exponentially. In my world, in my warfare and clearance diving, autonomy is huge. So you think about small little undersea robots going down and looking at what's on the sea floor to be able to influence that, whether that's a mine, whether maybe it's a submarine cable, whether it's something specialist acoustic that is subsurface that everybody is using. So what type of person do we need to do that? So if you're in a small boat, head of the force, you may have to use your own force protection. You may need small weapons. You may need to be able to communicate, but you also need to look at a, bit at a screen. You need to be technical enough to be able to change what a small robot is. You need to understand the implications if we're going to prosecute, interrogate, do something under there. So the mould of a clearance diver, strapping on his set and running over the hill and banging it in, is just too old. So yes, there's some of those skill sets, but that someone also needs to know what the ones and zeros are doing. Mm. So what type of person that is, that's what we're trying to attract. Yeah, okay. And I don't think anyone quite knows what that person is right now, but there's going to be a chance for some high-tech super warriors. And I think to some people that'll be appealing. Yeah, okay. It's a bit like now you see in the movies, right? People, the pilots in America, yeah. but they're flying the drone that's yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, like that's a quite a common thing. So we yeah. have what's called uninhabited vessels that we use in mine warfare. They're not unmanned because they're still... When I say man, I mean uh, people. Still people involved in that loop. I think it's a bit of a buzz phrase, but uh, large-scale submarines. Actually, so speaking about how we change jobs, I'm going to study next year, but at the end of next year, I'm going into a new role where I'll be the director of undersea autonomous systems, so really large, I was going to say, what's AUV stand for? Autonomous underwater vehicles. Think large robots, almost like small submarines, uncrewed underwater. That'll be yeah. the area I'm working in, and that'll be exciting. Yeah, and it sounds like they, the Defence Force must be hiring these people right now to yeah. build up the knowledge so that when someone does come in, they can train that. Or do you think we'll get to a point where they are hiring specialists from elsewhere from a different industry like technology to come in and build a program so that we can train the newest clearance diver? I think both. And a part that we'll really need to change is we need to be able to move at the speed of relevance. So in, in defence, large decisions are just low-burning. You know, the decision to build a large class of ship and how we're going to change something. If you apply that to a world-class tech company that's moving fast and breaking things, we're at such a disparate area. So I think what you'll see more is in the defence force taking risks where they can because the people that want to move fast and be this young techo they don't want to join up and march around for six months and do some crap like that. So there's going to have to be a whole bunch of give to bring that together. Yeah, right. So I think the end product of that is going to be exciting. Like all transitions, it's the bit in the middle that's really, really hard. How do you get all these senior folk in defence to change this piece and how do you get all these young people in the Australian community to go, this is what I want, how are we going to merge those together? Do you think over time then... As the generations come through, it's going to be harder to recruit people or find it attractive? Yeah, I think so, because those old common things about holding the line or service won't be enough. We can't just have someone picketing a fence because I'm afraid they're just not going to be smart or agile enough in a modern defence force. So how do you get someone who wants to be sitting in their garage being an IT geek, but also put on a uniform and want to defend our country? That's a fine balance, isn't yeah. it? challenge it is a challenge yeah well interesting times ahead then yeah so any final words in terms of if someone wants to join 
The Navy, they should, obviously. But what else? <laughs> oh, mate, I should have started with a disclaimer that this isn't a recruiting drive for me. <laughs> and so, look, my, the way I joined, I'm very out of date now. Probably having my nephew do the gap year was the closest connection. Online, there's a plethora of information, a huge amount. I'm not going to quote the number that you need to go and look at because it will sound like a recruiting drive then. <laughs> but I guess I'll be as open to say that it has, for me, it's been great. Best things in my life are marrying my wife and buying my house, and the Navy's helped me in both of those things. So there are some real positives to it, and I have enjoyed it. I personally think the Navy is a great opportunity, but it is not for everyone. And I guess everyone's got to reconcile themselves to make that make that piece. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you for your time. Right, eh? That was a fascinating discussion with Darren, with so many important points. A few that stood out to me was the variety the Navy offers from traveling all across the world to different skills and career building. It seems like a stable and attractive option. I also appreciate the idea of a gap year for newcomers, allowing them to try before committing. For the professionals, the opportunity to join as a specialist and possibly return in the future is intriguing, showcasing the enduring need for specialized skills. Overall, it was a great episode and I hope you enjoyed it. And remember, make today a good news day.